Welcome to Ledgers and Law, Lessons from the Trenches, where we bring experienced business and legal leaders together to discuss current topics at the intersection of tax, law, and business. And now, please welcome your hosts, Kevin McCoy of Carlton Fields and Chris Rocks of Cherry Beckert. Hello, everybody. I'm Kevin McCoy, and this is episode four of Ledgers and Law, a joint podcast between Cherry Beckert and Carlton Fields. I'm a shareholder in the Tampa office of Carlton Fields. I do business litigation, products, liability, defense. And I have with me Chris Rucks, who's a partner here in the Tampa office of Cherry Beckert. Chris, you want to give a little intro and then we'll introduce Joe. Yeah, thanks, Kevin. Um, it's good to be back. I uh, am an audit partner in uh, the firm's Tampa Bay practice and also run our healthcare and life science practice uh, for nationally for the entire firm. So really looking forward to uh, to this conversation and um Kevin, why don't you introduce our guests? Yeah, so today we have Joe Swanson. Uh, Joe's a partner here in Tampa, and Joe heads up our cybersecurity uh, group. Uh, and I don't know if there is a hotter area right now with everything that has changed uh, as a result of COVID. Uh, and this is a, this is a, a white-hot area of the law. I think it's a, an area that applies across the spectrum to folks who are dealing with, with any uh, uh, amount of business or any industry. Uh, so without further ado, I'll introduce Joe. Why don't you give us just a little bit of background and we'll jump right into it. Thanks, Kevin. Thanks, Chris. It's good to be here. Uh, as Kevin mentioned, I'm a partner in the Tampa office, Carlton Fields. I head up the firm's um, cybersecurity and privacy practice group. And prior to joining the firm, I was a federal prosecutor in Tampa focusing on cyber intrusions and other um, uh, cybersecurity matters working with the FBI and Secret Service. Very good. So, Joe, uh, cybersecurity is something that if you're, you know, you watch the news, you're on uh, LinkedIn, you're anywhere, you're seeing it's it's a trending issue in the law. It's a trending risk for business. What are some of the latest trends as someone who's doing this day in and day out that you're seeing and folks should be aware of? Thanks, Kevin. So on the cybersecurity side, um, uh, and I think these these risks go hand in hand with with COVID-19 and people working from home and being distracted and juggling uh, are uh, ransomware and business email compromises. And I'll talk about each of those and why those are particularly acute during the COVID-19 pandemic. So ransomware is um, it's malware. It's 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 malicious software that is put on a company's systems that in the old days, uh, and by old days we mean a year or two ago, uh, simply locked up the files or systems, rendered them inoperable, uh, and the threat actors, the bad guys who put the malware on the company's system would demand a payment in order to unlock those systems. They have now um, added a second component to it, and not only are they locking up the systems, but they are taking sensitive data and files from the company and using that as a second means to extort a ransom payment. So they will lock up the company's files. They will also take employee or customer uh, PII, credit card information, social security numbers if the company has that, sometimes trade secrets, and use that as leverage to try to get the, the victim company to pay. Uh, and so um, uh, the volume of those has just spiked uh, incredibly in the last six months. Um, while at the same time, business email compromises have been on a huge rise. Um, what those are is where a, a threat actor, a bad guy, um, either gets access to a company's email system or creates a very closely uh, uh, you know, resembling email address 
and pretends to be from a trusted source, either within the company or outside of it, and will try to insert themselves in an, in an email ex, uh, exchange, for example, that might involve a wire payment. Uh, and if no one pays close enough attention and realizes that the email address is off, or if the person is on the email system, uh, it may be particularly difficult to detect uh, because it will come from a legitimate domain. Uh, they then change the wire payment instructions uh, and, and uh, you know, a, a wire is diverted uh, sometimes uh, many, many days before anybody realizes it happened. Um, those have also spiked incredibly over the last six months. And Kevin, you asked me, you know, why these are, are hot. I think a lot of it has to do with the pandemic. People are working from home for the most part. They are using personal devices, uh, which may not have the same level of security as their company devices do. They're distracted. Uh, I mean, to state the obvious, people are, are worried about becoming ill uh, or they're at home caring for other members of their household while also trying to work. And all of that contributes to a distracted and strained workforce that proves to be particularly vulnerable to these threats. So, uh, Joe, to that point, what can companies do or what would you recommend they do in order to uh, you know, prepare for these types of attacks that are uh, clearly out there everywhere, um, but also mitigate the risk in the event that employee um, does make a mistake? Sure, sure. So um, there are a few things you can do just generally, uh, and then a couple that are specific to each of these each of these threats. So I'd say generally, um, you know, it, we hear it all the time, but it bears repeating. I mean, really take a look at what your training program is uh, uh, as a company. Uh, are you giving uh, periodic updates, not periodic, but regular updates on proper cybersecurity, not clicking on links uh, and attachments from sources that you don't recognize, pausing to check that the sender of the email is in fact the person who you think it is. You can hover your cursor over the email address and see is it truly uh, from an email address you recognize or if you hover over it, does it show that it's from a, a Yahoo or, or Gmail address that may have been made up by the by the threat actor. So there's training uh, and that really can't be repeated too many times um, there's some very good phishing training out there uh, that that you know tests employees on whether or not they click on links or attachments, and if they fail, uh, uh, you know provides them with some remedial training. Um, those solutions are very uh, worthwhile investments for for organizations. I'd say for a ransomware mitigation, you want to be backing up your data regularly, and you want to keep that data. Um, uh, that backup uh, off off the network so that if there is an infection, they cannot also get your backup because if you don't have backups as an alternative, uh, then you are, are operating from a position of weakness. So you need to have regular backups and you need to know where your data is so that if you do get hit and they do claim to have taken your data, you can assess the credibility of that threat. What kind of data do we have? Do we have employee social security numbers? Do we have customer social security numbers? Do we have health data? Uh, you know the threat actors are, are claiming to have all of this. Uh, how 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 uh, how valid is that is that threat? Having a good handle on what data you have will help you evaluate that and respond. Uh, I would add too that it's it's very important that companies consider um, their insurance program. Uh, do they have cyber insurance that protects against these sorts of things? When it comes to business email compromise, do they have a cyber insurance or crime policy? that would apply if a wire is diverted. Um, there, this is a hot area of the law. It's not clear that there's always insurance 
to cover those sorts of events um, where the use of a computer may just be incidental. And so companies really need to work with their brokers uh, to evaluate uh, the sufficiency of their coverage for these various threats. Joe, t- we've, we've done this before, and I think uh, it's, it's worth talking about here, where we've kind of gone through, it's almost like a, you know, a, game, a game plan for if you are hit with one of these attacks, that you have a game plan, you have a chain of command. You know, uh, talk to folks who are listening to this podcast about how important that kind of plan is and, and the timing that goes into these attacks when they hit and how critical it is in terms of how quickly you respond uh, and having a plan already in place to use as your playbook. So it's, it's critical, uh, Kevin, and um, uh, just a couple statistics to bear this out. So the, the average cost in the last year for a data breach in the United States, on, on a large scale, I mean, in excess of a million records is $3.5 million. But the same surveys show that having one of these plans in place that you've practiced can save... Uh, over a million dollars. Um, and, and those savings come from uh, being efficient, quick response time, uh, and then acting in a diligent manner as you are working your way through uh, whatever that, that crisis may be. So, so how do you actually have a plan and practice it? Well, you have an incident response guide, uh, which at, at its best is a really short, straightforward document, 8, 10, 12 pages, that identifies who's on the team if there's a cyber incident Uh, How do you um, evaluate threats and triage them? Not everything is going to require getting the full team together. Some may just be noise. That should all be spelled out in your plan. You should have contact information for the members of your team because these events uh, have a funny way of happening on Friday evenings and over the weekend. Have a way to get in touch with everybody uh, in, in short order, particularly where you've got um, you know, one of these wire frauds that may occur. Uh, the FBI or Secret Service, if you get them involved in the first 24 to 48 hours, has a pretty good success rate at clawing that money back. But once you get outside of 48 hours, uh, uh, that success rate diminishes considerably. So have this plan in place, um, uh, practice it, uh, and then work through it if, if you find yourself in, in the um, unenviable position of, of dealing with one of these attacks. So, Joe, in that regard, um, in terms of the plan, so I, I'm in the professional services industry like, like you are and, and uh, have access to a lot of, um, you know, very private uh, data of clients. Um, if, uh, let's just say I was, um, or my firm was to be, be attacked, what are the legal obligations um, to notify customers or other people that their data may be um, out there on the, the dark web? It's a great question, and the the obligations could come from a variety of sources. So one, uh, every state has a data breach notification law uh, that, you know, with with some uh, differences among the states, generally requires notice in the event of a uh, unauthorized acquisition or access of personal information. Personal information is usually a name and a social security number or a driver's license number or a financial account number. Um, and the notification obligations range from as soon as reasonably practicable to a set number of days, like 30 or 45 days. Often a state notification statute will require the company to notify the attorney general in that state or some other regulator. So that's a source of notification obligations. You need to also consider your customer contracts, um, independent of whatever state statutes may apply. Your customer contracts may include promises to keep your customer information private. 
And they may also include promises to notify your customers uh, within a certain period of time of any, um, of any breach. And we've had uh, a number of matters where the state notification statutes have not come into play because of how the terms are defined, but the contracts come into play and they may have very onerous uh, provisions like you will notify your customer of a potential compromise, not even an actual one, but a potential one, you know, as soon as possible and no later than 24 hours. Well, that is almost impossible to, to comply with uh, in most fact patterns. And so having a handle on what those customer contract obligations are uh, is really important if a company wants to um, stay in good stead with its customers. Joe, talk to the audience about you know some of these major breaches that you hear about on the nightly news or, or get the most attention because they're so widespread. My understanding is oftentimes those don't even start necessarily with the company that you're, you know, target that you're hearing about. Uh, it starts through some little vendor and that becomes the portal by which uh, they can get into the systems of the main company. Can you just talk about the importance of working with your vendors and the integrity there so that there's uh, not a backdoor access? Yeah, no, vendor management is is critical. Most of these state um, security statutes, for one thing, require uh, vendor management uh, and due diligence uh, when it comes to onboarding a new vendor and assessing their cybersecurity. And that's because, as you pointed out, Kevin, so many of these breaches occur through some vulnerability in a vendor that's then the means to access uh, the larger um, the larger victim. So Target is kind of the poster child of this. They that that attack that's now you know four or five years old. Um, occurred through the the bad guys getting access to an HVAC vendor uh, for Target and then using that vendor's access to get onto Target's system and the rest is history. And of course, nobody um, even remembers the name of that HVAC vendor, but they remember Target and Target is the one that bore the the, the fines and the litigation risk. Um, and so making sure that um, there's cybersecurity in place for your vendors uh, is absolutely critical. Uh, for businesses these days. No, that's uh, that's very helpful. Um, so, you know, when you talk about um, uh, privacy versus you know cybersecurity, how how are they how are they different, um, and how how should companies uh, approach that, or or what are the trends and regulations, whatever may be coming up, that are different between the two? Yeah. So so privacy um, has more to do with what data do you collect from consumers or your employees. Uh, and what and, and, and what do you do with it? Do you share it with third parties? Do you sell it? Um, uh, and so what we're seeing in the United States is is kind of um, uh, emulating what was what was going on in Europe for many years, and that is increasing focus on transparency and disclosures surrounding data collection and sharing practices. So California came out with a law that just took effect in January of this year that generally speaking requires companies that are subject to it to post notices on their website about what data they collect, uh, when they collect it, uh, how they collect it, and with whom they share it. And uh, consumers, um, Californians, are then able to make requests of those companies to say, I want to know how you request my data and who you've shared it with. And I want you to delete that data. And I think you're gonna see more and more of those laws get passed throughout the United States as there is a greater sensitivity and appreciation for some of these privacy rights that was always a focus in Europe and some other jurisdictions has been a little slower to catch on here, but frankly has been hastened by 
uh, a lot of the discussion around privacy and healthcare data uh, that's been part of the COVID-19 response. Talk about some of the healthcare data, Joe. And, you know, there's there's new biometric data. There's new health tracking data. You know, I have a watch that tracks movement, tells me when I haven't stood up enough, you know, in an hour and congratulates me when I do stand up. Talk about that kind of data and what kind of privacy issues are emerging for folks who not even just in the in the industry setting, but just average people every day being tracked, monitored and having their data uh, accumulated and reviewed and sold and everything else. So, so biometric data is, you know, uh, uh, the kinds of things you just described, Kevin. It's fingerprints, it's retina scans, uh, it's that sort of a thing that we see increasingly used, uh, say, to uh, enter a workspace. Uh, instead of, of time cards, a lot of employers are moving to retina scans or thumbprints to uh, clock workers in and out, or you might do it to go into a sporting event or an amusement park back when we could visit those things uh, before the before the pandemic, it um, uh, you know it, it it leads to the collection of a lot of a lot of data. Uh, there is a view that that data is more sensitive than other types of data because it's uh, it's immutable. If somebody gets your uh, fingerprints or your DNA, for example, um, how do you change that? Uh, it's not very easily done. So in some jurisdictions, there are laws that govern how that data is collected and disclosures about that data. And in one jurisdiction, there's even a private right of action for non-compliance with the statute, and that's Illinois. So broadly speaking, you're required in Illinois to disclose uh, how you're collecting biometric data, how long you keep it for, and giving um, the consumers or your employees an opportunity to opt out. And any non-compliance with that can lead to private litigation and there has been just an explosion of that litigation over the last year or two uh, in the form of class actions and otherwise. And I think you will also see other jurisdictions look to emulate that law. Florida considered one uh, just um, one or two sessions ago. It did not pass, but I think you can expect that to get reintroduced on a fairly regular basis. And it can mean real exposure for companies. And so you come back to, well, what can I do to deal with that? Again, having a good handle on what data it is that you collect where you keep it, how you keep it, is it secure, who do you share it with, is going to allow you to comply with a lot of these different uh, requirements. Well, thanks, Joe. We appreciate you joining us today uh, on Ledgers and Law. This has been a timely and great discussion. We hope it's useful to the folks who are listening, uh, no matter what industry you are in or even for your personal use. Uh, we'll be back uh, soon with another episode, but until then, we hope everybody stays safe and is doing well. Uh, thanks again. You've been listening to Ledgers and Law, Lessons from the Trenches, with Kevin McCoy of Carlton Fields and Chris Rucks of Cherry Beckard. This podcast is intended for general information and educational purposes only and should not be relied on as if it were advice about a particular fact situation. The distribution of this podcast is not intended to create, and receipt of it does not constitute an attorney-client relationship with Carlton Fields or client relationship with Cherry Beckard. Thanks for listening.